everybody, and welcome to another episode of Comics and Cinema. I'm your host, Alex Klein, and we had a little bit of a break over the last week or so. I was on vacation. Uh, you could call it a self-imposed vacation. Uh, took some time off, didn't really go anywhere. Um, I was in Texas the prior week visiting my parents and uh, stayed at their house the entire time. It was actually really fun, very relaxing, uh, though I was thinking about all of you the entire time, uh, just wishing that I could talk about something and that something would come up uh, because there, there haven't been a lot of new movies. And uh, Marvel has pushed back a lot of their their products. Uh, their closest thing, I think, coming is WandaVision in January. And Mandalorian has been out. And I have a very, very special treat for you guys in the next episode. That's right. I am going to be putting out a bunch of episodes um, at the time of this recording. It'll be today. But um, the Mandalorian has just been so good that uh, I think I think I'm going to do something special for that show. And uh, I'll dive more into it in a separate podcast. But for the sake of this podcast, we are going to be talking about a new show that came out that is, uh, if I do say so myself, right up my alley. Something that is one of those rare instances where comics and cinema meet. And that is Marvel's 616, which is a uh, TV series or documentary series that is on Disney+. Plus and just came out, I believe, last week, or uh, maybe a little longer than last week, uh, but it is, it's the full, the full series is on there, or at least it's the full season, I don't know if it's, it's a, a one-and-done season or not, I kind of hope that there's more episodes, but it is a total of eight, I believe, yes, uh, eight episodes, and so I'm actually going to dive into this, I watched all eight episodes over this last week as well, uh, I couldn't put it down. There were a couple of episodes that I liked way more than the other episodes, but overall, I thought the entire series was great. I thought it was a cool look into so many different aspects of Marvel and uh, things that I had been thinking about for a really long time. So for those of you that don't know, um, I have, I've been a fan of Marvel for as long as I can remember. I've tried to do the math to see when when it was that I first fell in love with Marvel um, and maybe even, you know, fell in love with Marvel as a company. When I was a kid, I really liked Spider-Man. I've always loved Spider-Man. But even then, I don't really know when I first started liking Spider-Man. That may have been when I was in middle school, maybe elementary school. I'm not sure. I, I played with a lot of toys, but I don't think I ever played with Marvel toys. I only ever played with, like, Gargoyles and, and Beast Wars and uh, I think I did have a couple of Marvel toys now that I remember it. It may have been things from like the McDonald's Happy Meals. But I was never, my parents never raised me to, you know, be a fan of one specific thing. They were never like, oh, you know, this is a Star Wars household, which is funny because that's what's going to end up happening when I have kids is, is it will be a, uh, I mean, my kids are going to be able to love whatever they want to love, but they will get raised on uh, Marvel and Star Wars and all that sort of stuff. Just because I, I partially, I guess I wish I had had been raised that way. But I also like the fact that I was able to discover it all on my own. And so um, I don't remember again exactly when that was. But over the years, my love for Marvel has grown and grown. And it's again, it started with the characters, and that's that's I think for a lot of people, it always starts with these characters. And then from there, it moved into the comics. And so I started reading comics 
when I was pretty young as well, but then I started collecting comics when I was in high school, uh, and I've talked about this in the past. Started with uh, Marvel's Civil War event back in 2006. That's when I first bought my actual comic, my first actual comics that weren't from like half price books or something like that. And uh, and then I kind of went back and forth um, where I would I would sell all of my comics and then I would start up collecting again right, right after college is when my next pickup was. I sold them all when I was in college to help kind of pay for uh, being in college. And then um, it's kind of gone off and on and that's where I'm at right now. But to be able to see and understand the way this business works, that's a passion that I've had since I was in college. Uh, I I went. I have a a, a degree in business management uh, with an emphasis in communications or a minor in communications. My emphasis is in management. Um, But that that entire time, I did a lot of work and a lot of studies uh, for Marvel. Not you know, not actually for Marvel, but just any time that I had an opportunity in one of my classes to analyze something Marvel related, I did it. I did leadership papers on Captain America. I uh, I would always look to see what the um, the stock price was for Marvel for Disney. Uh, the day that uh, Disney bought Marvel was like that's one of my highlight days. I would say in terms of like I remember what I was doing. That was when I was in college, or it might have actually been right before I went to college. I think that was two thousand and eight that uh, that Marvel had that, and I just remember being like, okay, this is going to change everything. And so I've just I being having such a business background as I do, I am so fascinated with Marvel's business side. It's always been my dream job to work for Marvel, or you know, at this point, I would love to work for Disney too. But uh, to work for Marvel has always been something. I've applied for probably ten different jobs at Marvel, never even gotten a callback on any of them. But I always make sure that I write like a one-page cover letter explaining, you know, all the all the work that I've done and how this could apply to this job. And they're they're weird jobs too. You know, I'll I'll take anything. I, they one of them was like a uh, marketing and, and, and whatnot. So it was not even like making comics, but it's just, just to work in that industry to me is fascinating. And so that is what, that's the biggest thing that I loved about this show is that I felt like I was getting an inside look at the business. And I, I was actually really impressed with the uh, honesty that I saw from so many different departments, not just, uh, the comics department, but the, you know, the toys, uh, some of the departments with Disney, it uh, <clears throat> it was just really cool to see. And so I'll, I'll dive into each of these episodes here. But so I guess it's safe to say I loved this series. Um, it wasn't, you know, on some level. I didn't give it a 10 out of 10. I gave it an 8 out of 10. But just as an overall series, I loved it. Again, as long as Disney keeps putting out this kind of content on their streaming platform, uh, I'm going to be a happy camper because along with the Disney gallery that they've been doing with Mandalorian, I love this behind-the-scenes stuff. And so the more that they can do this, the more that they can share their process and their stories behind these big things, uh, I'm, I'm just sign me up. I'll, I'll keep watching. So the first episode is, and and I will, I'll say too, you know, if you're, there's not really spoilers, I guess you could say there's nothing in here that impacts future things going forward. But if you haven't seen these and you're wanting to see them or you're wanting to wait, you can uh, go ahead and watch them and then uh, come back here. Otherwise, I'm going to just dive into each of these episodes. So the first episode is Japanese Spider-Man. 
And in each of these, I'm just looking on IMDb, they each have a different little thing. In 1978, Marvel Comics and Japanese distributor Toei signed a deal to bring Marvel characters to Japanese television. Their first collaboration was a massive hit that revolutionized the entire genre of popular Japanese entertainment. This, uh, I would say in the sliding scale of all these episodes, was not one of my favorite episodes, but I, I kept telling myself, because again, the ones I was really looking forward to was Higher, Further, Faster, and The Marvel Method. And I kept telling myself, well, you got to watch them all. Like, you have to watch them all, even if they're not something that you're interested in, just because, who knows, you may end up finding interest in it. And that is literally what happened with each of these episodes. So I, I really liked Japanese Spider-Man more than I thought, just because it was so cool to see a adaption of, of Spider-Man in a way that no one has really even known about. Like they, they adapted this and, and their, um, their, their stipulation or Marvel stipulation was like, okay, you guys can adapt Spider-Man, but, uh, nobody outside of Japan can know about this. So this needs to be something kept inside the country, just aired in the country. And, and recently I think they said like it was either in the, the late 80s, early 90s, or, or sometime in the 90s or 2000s that um, they actually released the episodes online for people to see. <clears throat> so it had been like 25 years or so since uh, you know these had aired, and they're wild. I mean, they show so many clips in this of Spider-Man having like Transformer-type ships and being a part of a giant sort of Transformer uh, because that was a big thing in Japan at the time. And just what a cool concept to be able to adapt that to the audience, the Japanese audience, and just to have it be so different than a regular Spider-Man was so cool. And I loved the the line that Spider-Man would say when he showed up that he was an emissary of hell. And uh, they're talking about, like, Spider-Man would never say that, but he does in Japan. And to, to me, that's just so cool. That's awesome. And uh, so I really enjoyed watching it. And I loved getting the perspective from the actor who uh, played Spider-Man, the Japanese Spider-Man. And when they were talking with him about, you know, did you know that Stan Lee watched the show? And he was like, oh, no, I had no idea. And they're like, yeah, he like loved it. And he, he got choked up just hearing that news and was like, wow, like that that is such an honor. That was also a really cool part of the series is, is Stan Lee has a presence in almost every single episode. And it was really cool to see that not only did he write comics, and we, we all know that he did, we know that he ushered in, you know, the, the greatest period in, in Marvel Comics history, um, but it was cool to see that he was so passionate about everything else regarding Marvel. Like, how can we get Marvel to the mainstream how can we adapt it into a tv show like he was all on board for all of this stuff so that first episode i thought was great cool introduction again it really kind of sent the message that uh, this was going to be a different uh kind of show and not just a cut and dry sort of thing like they were really going to dive into some more uh, crazy aspects of the show and so from there we get to the second episode which is higher further faster and this is from the perspective of what it means to be a woman in what is perceived to be a male-driven industry. Uh, this episode shined a light on the trailblazing women of Marvel Comics and explored how they found ways to tell stories of representation and inclusion. 
Uh, this is probably was my favorite episode of the entire series. It was the one that I was looking most uh, forward to the most. And that was also in part because when the trailer came out, I saw Sana Aminat in the trailer and I thought, oh yes, we are finally going to get to hear the story of Miss Marvel. Uh, I, and, and I've talked about, I, I made a, a post about this, but I, uh, like I said, I've collected comics for a while. I've, I've been into comics for a while, but it really wasn't until the uh, 2012 Captain Marvel and then subsequent Miss Marvel series and a couple of others, obviously, like Jonathan Hickman's stuff that I really fell in love with comics. And it was to the point that I had read that first issue of Kelly Sue DeConnick's Captain Marvel and I was just blown away, not just by the story, but by Dexter Soy's art, to the point that I actually made a poster of that last page of uh, "We will, we will be the stars. We will always, we, uh, and we will be the stars. We were always meant to be," and and a couple of other panels as well, just because it resonated so much with me, and it's something that's always kind of been with me, and I, I, I don't. I can't explain it, and I don't ever really want to try, but I just, I find so much uh, passion in strong female characters, and any time that I see a new female character created or uh, a great story about them, I just attach to those stories, and again, that's got to be some sort of psychological evaluation that needs to be done on me to figure out the why behind that. But I just, I love strong women. And I found the Kelly Sue DeConnick Captain Marvel story to be just the thing for me in that sense. She was just so strong and, uh, you know, cocky and confident. And same with Miss Marvel. I mean, she certainly wasn't at that caliber of Captain Marvel, but it was so cool to see a story about a young girl struggling with her identity or her secret identity and then also struggling with her family and her religion, which is hasn't really been done to that extent before, but it hadn't really been done since Peter Parker's Spider-Man. And again, I think part of that is because I really attached to the story of Peter Parker uh, back when I was growing up about I, I was that nerd in school and I always thought, man, like, I anytime we went on a school field trip, I kind of sent a quick prayer to whoever was listening that I'd get bit by a spider uh, whenever I went on a field trip. And so I just having there be uh, another person kind of going through that sort of thing where she becomes a superhero and kind of has to hide her identity from her family, but then also struggles with her other responsibilities in school. It's just a cool concept. And maybe that's because I'm a little OCD. I like multitasking. And so to see someone like that struggle uh, it, I, I, it, I can relate to it and I, I totally love it. Even though it's a girl and I'm a guy, uh, it's still, that's to me, that is shows how powerful a story it is that anyone can look at that and find some truth to it and some resonance for themselves, uh, with it. So shout, just shout out to them. Cause Kelly Sudeikonik kind of ushered in Miss Marvel as well. Uh, obviously Sana and, and some others, I think Steve uh, Buckley as well, um, created the character, or I guess ushered in the character, but she introduced that character in, uh, I think that was in The Enemy Within, it was like Captain Marvel 18 or something like that. I think her first appearance was in a point one episode or issue, but that part was cool. And uh, also just the, they, they highlight so many other great female creators. And, and to me, again, that's just something that 
has always been, and I don't know if that, maybe that's part of how I was raised as well. My mom is a very strong woman too. She was a teacher for a really long time. And uh, she always set a really great example for us. And so I've just always had that impression and that opinion that women can do whatever they want. And they are on par, if not greater than men, uh, as I, I typically say, uh, just because, uh, you know, they're the, they're the goddesses that we will never be. But uh, so to see this sort of stuff and to see, again, just the weird sort of misogyny back in the, the 40s and 50s and all of that of, oh, women can't draw comics or can't write comics, like never made sense to me because I was always like, okay, if you're, you're creating content, regardless of what medium it's in, uh, you're creating content. And if you're just pumping out the same uh, white male content every single day like how can you maintain that flow or at least i guess i could say how, how can you float for much longer by doing that like yeah we're gonna get steady comic book sales for focusing on spider-man and venom but look at all the good that has come out of miss marvel and miles morales and america chavez and silk and spider gwen like there's just so many characters that aren't that typical white male at the age of 30 with powers. And it's really added a niche that isn't even, maybe isn't even a niche anymore and is just becoming that mainstream idea that anybody can write a comic. Anybody can draw a, and color a comic. And you don't, it doesn't matter if you're, you're gay, straight, male, female, uh, as long as you have a creative story to tell, uh, it's there, and I—that's why it was nice to see this episode. But again, I was—I was, I was kind of shocked at some things. But I, I would say a huge shout out to—I think it was Luis Simonson, and also uh, Joe Duffy. They had some really great stories about uh, just their time in comics and the things that they did. And it was literally the same thing of like, hey. I filled in for somebody who was out of the office and got just the right compliment from the man that I needed to hear it from, and now they want me to draw comics. And even then, like there was, I think that was Joe Duffy who was saying that she, um, well, I don't remember what character it was, but it was like she was like, yeah, you can write this character for Chris Claremont because he's he's struggling, he's got too many titles. And they were like, and I, again, I don't remember what it was. It was like, okay, he was writing Iron Man and he was writing the X-Men. And they were, he was like, no, no, I want to write Iron Man. Like, you take the X-Men or wh whatever it was. She was like, well, I didn't care whether it was this one or that one. Like, I was just going to write. And so, again, it's like so funny that they are, and by they, I mean these female creators are coming from a place of like, just give me something. Give me some sort of work. I will do whatever you want to do. And then you see these other guys, these guys who are so picky. And it's like, why would you even want that around? And we're going to we're going to get to that in the comics episode with Dan Slott. But um, it was just great to see that, especially with this. And, and I know Marvel included has a long road to go. It's not an overnight process. I will give them credit that they have gotten a lot more diverse, at least over the last decade. Uh, in terms of the stories they're telling, in terms of the creators that they're hiring, um, uh, it, it, it's gotten a lot better. But they still have a, a little ways to go, I think. There's still some behind the scenes that I've read about that it's like, okay, there's still still some work to be done. But I, I applaud them for not just the diversity in gender 
and um, an, an orientation, but also the diversity in location, which is kind of leads into this next third episode, which is amazing artisans. And uh, and I guess I was going to say too. So before and before we get to that, I just I thought it was amazing that we got to get the full story from Sana about Miss Marvel because I had been following again Miss Marvel from the beginning. I've got that first issue and uh, I've loved that loved her ever since and and I honestly I was rooting for Sana more than I was for G Willow Wilson only because again like she was the face of Miss Marvel the, the character's kind of based off of her and so I had read a lot of news articles and things about about that but I never got the full story of it and so it was so cool to have her sit down in this documentary and go through what it took to get Miss Marvel on the page. And credit to, and I said Steve Buckley, it's Dan Buckley, he's coming in the other episode, but Steve Wacker, um, props to him as well for believing in this in this um, project and, and pushing through for it. Again, a lot of times these types of things are held back by specific men in power, and so it was really nice to see him be one of those guys that, again, I hope he does this with everyone, but to say, hey, I care more about the story than I do about the politics that might come from it. Let's just make a great story, and boom, we get a great story like Miss Marvel. So huge shout out to both of them. Uh, but so this third episode, Amazing Artisans, uh, is, a, is about visual storytellers drawing inspiration from their environments, and few fans realize how many Marvel artists live and work around the world far from the Marvel bullpen of New York. And so that's what I was saying at the end of the, the last episode, is just this diversity of location where there are so many artists right now uh, and creators that are all around the world. It used to be that Marvel, to work for Marvel and Marvel Comics, you had to live within, it, I think Dan Buckley was saying, like within 30 minutes of the office or something like that, which again, I, I get I get in the 1940s aspect, like we'll stick with who we know and that sort of thing. But with the, the and I could call it advent of globalization, but just the idea that there are so many creative voices and stories just waiting to be told all around the world, why in the hell would you want to limit yourself to thirty minute a thirty minute radius around New York City to tell stories? Like at that point, not only are you alienating creators, but you're alienating your audience because there are so many people outside of New York who read comics and are dying for cool new stories. So it was awesome to see this episode uh, and and to follow both uh, Natasha and uh, Javier in their stories. And so Javier. And but what was cool is both of them are they're doing some really good things right now. And I, I was thinking about it, and I could have swore Carmen Carnero was in this episode as well. She very well could have been in the Miss Marvel episode, uh, for since she drew and, and draws Captain Marvel. But she's also from uh, uh, Spain, I believe. But both of these guys are from Spain. So Natasha is. Um, she writes or she draws for Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, and she's done a couple of other things as well. But she is one of the Stormbreakers now for Marvel. So every year they cut. They used to come call them the Young Guns, and every year they would come out with artists that you know these are the next artists, the ones that you need to look for. 
and they had some greats like Javier Garon was one of the young guns and um, uh, Russell Dowderman, one of my favorite artists, is one of the young guns as well. Carmen Carnero too, but now they're calling them Stormbreakers and Natasha is one of those Stormbreakers now, which is so cool to see, to see her story of how young she was when she just learned and loved to draw, kept trying, kept doing it and same with Javier. He was so passionate about it and he's killing it right now on Avengers, which is on Marvel Unlimited. I just read that new Moon Knight uh, arc and uh, he does the the art for that and it's so good he also did the does the art for miles morales spider-man just to see his process of how he creates the art too is so cool and to find out that he uh, spent so much time submitting pages and projects to marvel with them consistently denying it to him was cool to see that he never gave up and uh, same with Natasha as well. She she just was so cool to see her process. And again, to for her to be able to draw someone that she was passionate about and someone that resonates with her uh, was just so cool. And so again, that that just really elevated my opinion of Marvel that much more. Uh, because I have always thought that Marvel was a very restrictive company that, oh, you know, you can only work for them if you work in New York and all this stuff. So it's really nice to see them uh, getting a little less... Uh, stringent with their policies when it comes to hiring people, which is good because, again, we want those diverse opinions. We want new and fresh stories. Uh, So from there, the fourth episode, Lost and Found, was so good. This episode made me laugh so much. Paul Shear is uh, is actually, and they say it at the beginning, it's a documentary episode that he was doing about making a... uh, like a Disney Plus show about an unknown Marvel property. And so kudos to the Disney employees who humored him in the documentary that listened to him and his briefings, including Steve Wacker, who was there as well. And both of them were just, there. I I did not think I would laugh as much as I did in this episode, and I did. It was great. John Hamm was hilarious. It was cool too. We got we kind of got to see the process of him him first meeting with some Marvel creators like Donny Cates, which was awesome to see. Talking about lesser known Marvel properties such as US uh, US One, the trucking comic. Not even available on Marvel Unlimited, but I bet you it will be. But eventually he settles on Brute Force, which is a four-issue miniseries about these animals that are also like robots and cyborgs. And so he's working on developing this. And so he goes and meets with some artists who drop some concept art for him that actually looks badass. And then he eventually meets with a bunch of actors, including John Hamm, and uh, there's a couple of other really funny people, and he's just kind of going through the characters, saying like, "Hey, what, like, what would you think about this character playing this character as a, you know, you know, voice actor sort of thing?" And they were just so funny, and and so cool to see the creative process of these actors when they're not acting, to kind of get in their heads about how they would act with these characters. I thought that was really cool to see, and so from there, by the end of it, he. Uh, he makes a like two minute pitch to Disney and shows them the footage and they're like, no, basically like we're not going to do this. Like it was, it was really great. It was really, really funny. Um, but that, I really liked that episode and it was cool to see that, you know, there's so many, uh, Marvel characters out there that are yet to be written. And it just made me think of, you know, what the future will look like for Marvel when they choose to either, you know, reinvigorate these older properties or create brand new ones 
with characters and stories we've never seen before that aren't centered around a single superhero that are you know animals as robots or whatever it is you know a, a dinosaur series would be pretty cool or some series that's I, I don't know I'm just making stuff up now but the, just that idea I thought was cool that they would allow him to do that and then go you know what we're gonna make this into a Disney plus episode so thank you Paul uh, for doing that the next episode is called suit up and so this was an episode about cosplay and this one I really liked as well I didn't think that I was going to I have a very mixed opinion about cosplay uh, I love the idea of cosplay but I just don't think that I'd ever do it and that's not because I don't want to I just know myself and the like the fact that I don't dress up very often to then dress up not just as maybe one of my favorite characters from you know comics or anime but to go through the rigmarole of like dyeing my hair and putting face paint on and makeup and designing a costume and wearing that costume for one day and that one day happens to be at a convention where there's so many people and you're hot and you're trying to make things easy like you don't want to be you know held down by a bunch of baggage uh, I just that to me that is really unappealing and so anytime that I go to a con, I usually try and dress, you know, with my, I'll either wear my Marvel shoes or I'll just try and wear comfy shoes. But then I usually wear a shirt and I have some pretty cool Marvel shirts, not going to lie about that. But um, that's like my extent of cosplaying. But it has always been a dream of mine to cosplay. Like I, at one point I was going to cosplay as Deku from uh, My Hero Academia. But then I was also thinking of doing like Harry Potter or Spider-Man. But again, I just keep thinking like, oh, that would be the amount of work that I would need to put into that is not equitable to the amount of I guess you could say well who knows maybe the amount of pleasure that I would get out of it is a lot and I'm just holding myself back which is the one thing that anime would tell you not to do is to be held back by a limit but that's kind of where I was when I was watching the episode and so to see these people spend so much time dressing up taking pictures having Instagram accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers was really cool and I just went to show that there are people out there way better than me at cosplaying and I think right now for the for right now we'll let them be the ones that are the stars for the cosplaying um, but that, yeah I don't remember their names exactly but there was one girl who dressed up as Shuri from Black Panther she was phenomenal she had so many cool costumes and you could tell that she uh, really cared about it and and she honestly I, I was very jealous of her because not only was she basically cosplaying for fun but also for clout uh, her day job was as like a visual designer for video games and her husband did some other online job that was really well paying and they're both kind of just I guess living their best life in an apartment in some probably really nice city and I just thought man what a dream that must be to wake up every morning and get your creative juices flowing and uh, and then dress up for fun in the evenings and have your your significant other taking photos of you doing so and then posting like I don't know I thought that was cool that was really cool and then there was also um, there was also a person who uh, she or he or she they dressed up as Doctor Strange and I thought they were awesome and specifically just because. I was, as I was watching, um, trying to see, because I assumed that they would, you know, reveal what the, what they were, I guess you could say, in terms of gender, because um, I couldn't necessarily tell 
Uh, and then when they said that they didn't really identify with one gender or another, I was like, oh man, that's perfect because that's kind of how I felt watching them. I was like, they do kind of seem like an in-between and it was so cool to see somebody know who they are in that, in that, at that level and not only know who they are, but be confident enough to then cosplay as characters of either gender was so cool and so inspiring and hopefully inspiring to others out there who are maybe struggling with that same thing to say, you know what, just because you're different doesn't mean you can't enjoy the same things that other people enjoy. Go out and dress up as Magneto or Doctor Strange. Like you can do it just like anybody else can. And uh, it probably doesn't help or doesn't hurt that they were really good at making costumes, especially with the going to the, it was like the garment district and picking up the different things for the cloak and then having it turn out and look as good as it did was just it it again I I don't think that I could dedicate that much time to doing that sort of thing but if I could man these these would be my role models they would be my role models that just so cool to see that they work so hard on making these costumes and then they show up to these cons where so many people are looking at them and uh you know just watching them and and they're think, probably thinking you know what are people thinking of me but they go out there and they just live their best life and I think that is so cool so uh you know and to you as well and again I don't remember their name but uh super jealous of you as well <laughs> because uh, it sounded like you had a, a you know a fun time doing all of that too, and then there was another the guy there was a guy who dressed up as Captain America too. I I don't know why he dressed up as the Captain America that he did just because there's so many other cool costumes of him. I'm sure he's dressed up as those key characters, but his was a really inspiring story too because he, um you know he he was kind of trying to set an example for his girls and he got his wife involved. To me, his story felt a lot like what mine would end up being in the future of like convincing my wife to do it with me and then having our kids get involved eventually whenever we have kids. Um, but his story was cool. I liked that. I liked that he had a couple of buddies help him make the costumes. And then there was another girl too who said she had uh, autism who dressed up as uh, Moon Knight. Uh, I thought she was really cool as well. I loved that she had a group of friends that all cosplayed together. Um, that was awesome. And uh, again, just really cool to see all of these different people coming from all these different backgrounds, dressing up and and living their best their best life, as as I would say. Uh, the next episode was Unboxed, and that was a shorter episode. That was about toys and about all the different types of toys. It focused mainly on the Hasbro Legends, I believe it's Hasbro Legends or Mattel Legends, and then Funko Pops. Uh, and I collect Funko Pops, so that was really enjoyable to watch. But what I took from this episode was that um, uh, these people in, in all of these episodes are talking about all of these things that get them fired up and excited. And for them to be able to wake up every single morning and work on toys, designing them, coloring them, painting them, like what a life they must have to be able to have their passion on on deck every day that they're getting to do that. Like I you know, imagine if I got paid 
to read comics every single day. Like that would be amazing. That would be awesome. I'd be so happy to go to work. Granted, I'm very happy with the job that I have. I actually love my job, but it has nothing to do with comic books. Uh, But these people, I mean, there was this older woman who she was probably in her 60s, maybe 70s, that's still drawing comics. Or not comics, but just character designs for toys. And she's got this whole room where she's got, you know, action figures and stuff. And I just thought, you know, to have your brain be that young for that long is so rare. So many people just get so stuck in their ways at a very young age, whether that's 20, 30, whatever the case may be. You know, any age is a young age to get your brain stuck. But just kind of deciding, you know, I'm done. I'm done being curious. I'm done having fun. I'm done laughing. Like these people have held on to that for so long and they've gotten to enjoy their life so much more. Uh, it was just was really inspiring to see and was something that a great lesson for us all that when you are doing something that you love, whether you're getting paid for it or not, uh, cherish those moments. And I, I certainly do whenever I can. Uh, but that just was a cool message. And again, super cool to see all the work they do with these toys and, and how they're constantly creating new toys. That was awesome. Uh, well, now we're going to get to uh, the Marvel Method episode. And so this episode is was was tough for me because I'm a huge fan of Dan Slott. Uh, and I'm a fan of, uh, I'll correct myself, I'm a fan of certain Dan Slott work. I have the uh, Dan Slott Silver Surfer Omnibus. Uh, loved his Silver Surfer run. I loved almost all of his Spider-Man stuff. I loved that he killed Spider-Man. I loved his superior Spider-Man stuff. He felt very fresh, but then after a while, he also felt like he was overstaying his welcome, and I was like, okay, man, like you've been writing for a long time. These stories are semi-interesting, uh, but I had no beef against him. I've never really had any beef against Dan Slott until I watched this episode. And that is because for some reason or another, they wanted to make this, it seemed like they were trying to make it into a comedy, that it somehow is funny that he waits until the last second to do his job. And I, and I'll preface this too, because I was like, am I the only one that thought this? Bleeding Cool had multiple articles about this. I saw an article on another website about this. Other people were commenting on this as well, that they didn't understand how, um, how someone like that could keep their job. And I, I certainly don't know the ins and outs of Marvel. I won't profess to know, but I can certainly, you know, extrapolate from uh, teachers who have tenure that don't get fired. Maybe that's the same thing with Dan, that he's been working there for so long. I think he started working there in the 90s. Uh, that he's, you know, he's just a legacy person there, that they're not going to fire. They're just going to wait for him to retire, which is sad uh, if that is the case, because I I totally understand the deadline scenario. I've been collecting and following comics from the business side for longer than 10 years, and I know what happens when comics get delayed and pushed back and, and, and extended out to other months. And, and they admit, you know, hey, the artist needed more time to do the art. And we probably, like, for example, Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars, that was an infamous one where they, it took forever for a lot of those issues to come out. Same thing with Civil War. The last few issues of Civil War got pushed back a little bit too for that same reason. So it happens. I totally get it. But to ha- to joke about it in the way that he joked about it, to say like, oh, ha ha ha, look at me. I can, 
I can fiddle and faddle all I want on my laptop and not know anything, and it comes up to the deadline, and Christos Gage can just write all my dialogue for me. And so what's funny is, in a way, he opened my eyes quite a bit. And so to that, thanks, Dan and Marvel, both Dan Slott and Dan Buckley. Uh, Thanks to all of them for opening my eyes to see that uh, not everyone is as great as they seem to be. And again, Dan seems like a really cool guy. I would love to meet him. Uh, But I also just don't get why he hasn't been let go yet or why he hasn't been put into like a premature retirement for what he, um, I guess, consistently does with those that he works with. And so again, I I get deadlines. I get missing them. That's it's it is hard work to do monthlies. I totally understand that. But but it should not be something that is made into a oh look at me sort of thing like I can get away with it I can I can do whatever I want and Dan Buckley still kind of likes me basically I mean Dan teased him too as did Pete Woods as did um, who was a Joe Caramagna uh, who I was really hoping guys I know you for those of you longtime listeners I was really hoping to see VCs Clayton Cowles in this episode but he was not but then also uh, Christos Gage huge respect for him to be someone that can just be brought in to uh to help finish a comic by creating dialogue i will never look at a dan slot comic the same if it is a comic where he is co-writing the comic with someone else now i will forever know that means that he couldn't meet his deadlines and that someone else had to be had to come in to help with the job and so again like i said thank you to that for marvel so now i know who i can put my appreciation towards uh because for depending on the story it's probably not going to be dan Uh, But again, hey, Dan, thank you for all the work that you've done in the past, especially on Silver Surfer and Spider-Man. I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed some of your Mighty Avengers stuff as well Uh, and your Avengers Initiative run. That that was a good one too. But I think some of those had Christos Gage on it, so I don't know if I'm putting my appreciation in the right spot. But the big takeaway from this episode was Pete Woods. Pete Woods drives around the country in a camper drawing comic book pages on his tablet. Again, another episode showing what it is like to truly live the dream. And Dan Buckley said it too. He said it in this episode of, you know, we wanted, uh, we let our writers and, and artists kind of live wherever they want and trust that they are bringing the work in at the right time. That's kind of how it is right now at my job. And it's it really is the way of the future. And so I'm glad to see Marvel embracing it. And I'm also glad to see creators embracing it too. So huge shout out to you, Pete. Uh, very jealous of you, buddy. And I hope you enjoy your road trip around the US. Hopefully you can get to Europe and do it over there too. Uh, but that, so other than that, it was a great episode. I really enjoyed seeing how comics are made. Again, I had a pretty good idea, but I didn't know that Dan Slott was the only one still using the Marvel method and somehow still can't turn his stuff in on time. Uh, and everyone else is using kind of new age methods. So really cool to see. But um, but like I said, I, I was hoping for a little more. I really wasn't wanting it to be this self-deprecation episode. And it kind of ended up seeming like it was. Because And, and I'll point out too, the, the biggest reason for that is I know how many creators are out there and have stories to tell. And for him to be able to do what he did in this episode and other creators who are busting their humps a lot harder than he is... Uh, or who could turn in something on a deadline are not getting the opportunity and they're being passed over for someone like him who is a legacy creator who has been there for a long time. But again, that's 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 about as much as I can say on it because again, I don't that's all I know is from watching the episode and then from the the following that I do throughout the years. Final episode was called Spotlight. 
And this was also a really cool episode. This was a story about a high school in Florida that put on two Marvel play productions. And I had no idea that Marvel did plays. Uh, and so one group of, it was, I would assume, Theater One students uh, were doing a Miss Marvel play. And then the Theater Two or Three students were doing a Squirrel Girl play. And I, uh, I used to do theater in high school. I never actually ended up performing in a play. I did a lot of improv stuff during class, and then I made my own movies, uh, but not actually with the school. But I do know how, how tough that is, and I know how tough it is memorizing lines. I know how tough it is getting up in front of people. So just a huge shout-out to all of these kids to not only have to do that for their peers, their friends, their family in the school, but to also have that be filmed and directed by Allison Brie uh, and, and shown on Disney+. Plus. Like that just I thought it was really inspiring to see these kids from so many different backgrounds having different reasons for wanting to get involved in theater and watching their process of memorizing lines, practicing the play was just, it was so good and it was so inspiring. So, um, so I really, I really liked that one as well, but that, and that's the show. So each of these, what I really liked too, is each of these episodes was as long as they needed to be. Arguably some of them could have been longer with, I think the longest episode being higher, further, faster. And I could have, I could have probably had that episode be like 10 hours and I would have watched it, but it was cool. Some of the episode, the toy episode was like 38 minutes. And then the higher, further, faster was an hour and 10 minutes. So they varied in length and you can, they're anthology wise. So you do not need to see one before you see the other. So you don't need to follow in my footsteps and watch them start to finish you could skip around pick a couple of your favorites my recommendations would be higher further faster uh, amazing artisans and lost and found those would be my favorite i would recommend um unboxed as well and maybe the marvel method but like i said just be ready on that marvel method to be like okay well uh, hey, hopefully you can enjoy the Dan Slott comedy a little more than I did just because I did not – again, I, I'm, I'm a business guy, and I know about deadlines. I know about hard work, and I don't doubt that Dan has put in hard work, but I just immediately was like, man, if that was my guy, we'd, we'd be – I'd be pulling him in my office and giving him a performance review and being like, you need to – we need to put you on a plan so that you can perform better because you know getting in at the last minute is not good for literally anybody. But – Overall, I thought this series was great. I really hope they come out with a second season. Uh, but until then, I'm your host, Alex Klein. You've been listening to Comics and Cinema. You can find me on Twitter at a robot's wink or Instagram at a robot's wink. Let me know what you thought about this episode, and I will talk with you guys soon. Music.